one of the greatest correlatives between a team's behavior and business outcomes happens to be uh, a team that can absolutely challenge each other in the room, particularly when it's risky to do so. Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Keith Ferrazzi. Keith is the chairman of Ferrazzi Greenlight and its research institute. He and his team focus on the behaviors of high-performing executive teams. He focuses on counseling teams, not individuals. He's the author of several best-selling books, including Who's Got Your Back, Never Eat Alone, Leading Without Authority, and his latest, Competing in the New World of Work. I've got a copy of it right here, in fact, and highly recommend it to those who are listening. Prior to his current role, he was the chief marketing officer of both Deloitte and of Starwood Hotels. Keith Ferrazzi, welcome to Technovation. It's great to see you today, and it's wonderful to speak with you. Peter, I'm looking forward to this. Wonderful. Well, uh, Keith, I, I thought I'd begin with, I, I've just provided a, a, a brief description of some of the things that you and your team do. I'd love to give you a, a little bit of time and have you talk a bit about how you describe what you do. T take a moment and do so if you would. Well, first of all, I thought that was lovely. So I'm taking you with me everywhere. So <laughs> but in terms of what we do, um, very simply, a leader will typically bring us on board if they believe that strapping a booster rocket to their strategy and their success requires a change in the behavior of how their team works. And we deliver that. An organization like a large telecom, for instance, where the CIO was typically thought of as the executor of technology, but not necessarily the Sherpa or the agent of business transformation. You know, you could imagine a large telecoms company where the network's important, but is technology and what's really driving the business change. And in a case like that, you've got a CIO who might have always been at the tip of the spear. They've always been the individual who's the arbitration of their key business relationships inside of the organization. But for great leaders to do what they need to do, they need to be three, freed up 30% of their time by their team stepping up and being the agents of business transformation. And what's interesting about, particularly in technology worlds, the silos that exist inside of a technology organization are extreme. And a lot of it is because there's so much to do and there's so many expert swim lanes to do it in. And we stick to our knitting. But I created a word a number of years ago, I call it co-elevation, where a group of people actually see each other as value-oriented to all of us are achieving our our goals, where we're committed to a shared mission, but we're committed to each other. And by unleashing that team to, to achieve the goal together, it can be truly be transformative and, and elevate the IT organization to be the Sherpa of business transformation. So it typically tends to be when there's, there's value left on the table by the team not truly being a team. What do you diagnose as uh, the reasons why teams are not truly being a team? And likewise, what are some of the first steps towards overcoming that? I know, no doubt we're talking about cultural elements. We're talking about behaviors. We're talking about some of the most difficult things to change. And so I'd be interested about the, the methods you use to begin uh, to push the organization in the right direction. It's such a smart question. So we have a diagnostic survey that we use, eight attributes of a high-performing team. But what's very interesting is one of the greatest correlatives between a team's behavior and business outcomes happens to be uh, a team that can absolutely challenge each other in the room, particularly when it's risky to do so. 
where they cross the swim lanes, where they where they're willing to give each other feedback, where they're willing to contribute innovations and ideas across divisions, across functional expertise. Now, for that kind of team, you can either hire for it, like Ray Dalio does, if you've read his book, Principles, or you can build it through an esprit de corps that the team is so deeply committed to its relationships with each other that they wouldn't possibly let each other fail. Now, in one instance, challenging a peer could be seen as throwing them under the bus. In another instance, challenging a peer is the greatest gift to making sure that that person succeeds. So coaching that level of intent, and you mentioned, what do you start with? We actually start with the relational side, while at the same time, you build small doses of experience of challenge. Now, what we've identified over uh, over 20 some years of this kind of coaching is there, when we observe a team that crushes it, um, you know, like uh, the CEO Dave at MongoDB is extraordinary at this. He's both a client, but a, an inspiration. And to watch that team wrestle and challenge and debate, you can see its performance. I mean, it still acts performance-wise like a like a fast-growth unicorn startup, and it's and yet it's a you know a post-IPO uh, public company, and it's and it's doing so well. And to to look at a team like that that has those behaviors, what we do is we look at practices. So I can't get a behavior to change until I adopt a new practice. There's a wonderful phrase. I feel like L and D, learning and development. We focus too much on mindsets. Let's change the mindsets. Well, I'm sorry. There's a, there's a phrase that was created in AA that said, you don't think your way to a new way of acting. You act your way to a new way of thinking. So for instance, there's an old process called a report out. Somebody shows up at a meeting, they give a report out. A couple of people chirp something. You go on to the next report out. Well, an average room of 12 people four people will be heard. And that's what happens in that old standard format of reporting out. Well, we do something called stress testing or aggressively bulletproofing. Somebody shows up, they have a, um, a new way, uh, they have an update and we use the agile format. You know, what have you, what have you done? Where are you struggling and where are you going? And forcing somebody to reveal their struggles in the front of their peers. But then you snap your fingers, you get a breakout rooms of two and people are assigned to come back after 10 minutes with active challenges for what they heard, risks that are identified, innovations that they would offer. So you turn this principle of a, of a challenge-based culture, which is a mindset, you've turned it into a practice, an assignment. And over time, these kind of assignments and practices and how we meet actually end up changing our mindsets. So we adopt these new practices including some of the relational practices, like more intimate sharing of, you know, where we're struggling today, personally and professionally in our lives with each other, which builds, in, again, that esprit de corps. So we, we come at the challenge from multiple practices from different angles until the team reboots its behaviors and its mindsets. That's a great overview, Keith. Thank you so much for, for letting us in on some of your methods from that perspective. 
And in many ways, I mean, you're talking about building trust and psychological safety, uh, taking risks, and especially what would have been risks probably in the not so distant past, maybe even in the prior day, the extent to which this is early on in the collaboration you would have with teams. And I know there are a lot of executives, perhaps many who are listening or, or watching to this interview now, who worry about uh, trust as a currency at a time where so much of our work is done virtually. Most organizations are, uh, some, some have taken stances to primarily return to offices and operate much like they did in 2019. But the average organization, as you certainly know, uh, is taking some sort of hybrid approach and, and, and others still are, are primarily working virtually and hiring people wherever they may be, sometimes at great distances, therefore almost cutting off the possibility of working together. And one of the things I found so fascinating in your work and our past conversations is you, you've thought an awful lot about how to optimize during this new mode of work and to be able to establish cultures of trust and psychological safety that are required to do some of the th things that you've described. I wonder if you can provide some of the elements you see as working best, uh, especially given some of these understandable concerns for folks who have had decades of career operating in a very different mode than this one. Yeah, thank you. And again, I, I so appreciate your questions. They show a lot of thoughtfulness, a lot of insights, and a lot of understanding of the circumstances that your your audience of IT professionals are are grappling with. So, um, first of all, we started doing this research in 2010. I wrote, uh, I, I approached Harvard Business School Press and said, I want to do a research project called "What Are the New Rules in a Virtual World," and they greenlit. I think 18 articles that I wrote in HBR over that period of five or six years. I think six people read them back then. And for some reason, I'm not sure why, but in 2020, I got an uptick in the reading of these articles that I had written you know, almost 10 years ago. And, and the reasoning is this, and, or the point is this, if you try to engineer hybrid work to be as good as it used to be, it will fall short. If you try to engineer hybrid work to be better than work used to be, it can be. And so the point that I'm making is, if all we do, there was a, there's a man that you might remember that wrote an article about technology reinvention. His name was Michael Hammer. And he wrote a wonderful article in Harvard Business Review called Paving of the Cow Paths. And it was all about re-engineering the corporation, which is what he became known for. And if so what we've done in too, too frequently is we've taken these amazing collaborative tools available to us, and we've just used them to pave over or to, or to try to do what we used to do as well as we did. And in reality, we need to reinvent collaboration. So, you know, we move from a, um, from a, uh, from a boardroom to an interactive room like this, a video room. And I'm trying not to use specific technology names in doing this because they all work just as well in that regard. Now, what was interesting is we still never used the, the snap of a finger breakout room that we could. So when you're, in a, when you're in a large room of 12 people, I mentioned that four people think they're heard. But if you go to a breakout room of three and the psychological safety, I've talked to Amy Edmondson about this. Our research shows psychological safety goes up 85%. So in the middle of the meeting, just to pause and say, okay, we're having a debate on this, go to breakout rooms for three minutes 
say in that breakout room what needs to be said in the main room, and then let's come back. They do, they go, and it's rebooting the conversation for psychological safety, higher degrees of candor and transparency. Simple use of a tool in a functionality that we don't typically use. Because we wouldn't in a room do that, although it was interesting because that was a format that I used to use when I was coaching physical rooms. I would pause in the middle of a discussion and say, okay, what's not being said here that should be said? Turn to your partner, talk about it, and then report back what's not being said. We can still do it, but we didn't do it that way. So we have to re-engineer the assumptive interactive change. The other thing is using meetings. One of the greatest uh, failures of old school collaboration and still remains so is that meetings are the primary form of collaboration today. It's the greatest myth that I've been trying to debunk for a very long time. But then you look at, you look at these fast growth, disruptive unicorn companies that we benchmark all the time. And they were born and suckled on the Google stack of collaborative tools in school. And so, so when a guy like Gil West, who I love from Delta Airlines, goes over to Cruise, he was the chief operating officer of Delta. He goes over to Cruise and he looks around and he says, hmm, we've got a problem here. Let's have a meeting on it. The team looks at him and says, well, how do we have a meeting on it? We haven't collaborated yet. So imagine if you have a problem and the person who's calling the meeting is calling the meeting because they assume a certain problem and they may even assume a certain answer to that problem. And they're gonna call a meeting to have a discussion on it. So in that meeting with that discussion, as I said before, four people will be heard. But what if we do this? Before the meeting, what if we put a Google sheet out to people and we say, I want all of you to write your name and then next column is, what is the major problem you think we're really trying to solve for here? And next to it, write what you think is the solution for that problem. And everybody does it. And that information is revealed in a Google sheet that everybody can see and fully understand everyone's point of view. Now we can decide what meeting or meetings do we really need to have? Who really needs to be there? What is the real problem we're trying to solve? It's, it's, I call it meeting shifting. It's, it's shifting an entire realm of collaboration, which didn't, wouldn't have even have happened in the old world. We shifted that collaboration into the cloud, so much more inclusive, so much bolder. And, um, and, and, and as a result, we can get more innovative thinking. And the cycle time is faster because we can actually have one meeting, land the plane on a couple of key issues, instead of that next meeting being the kickoff, People haven't even been heard, back channel conversations out of the out of the room, and, and now we schedule subsequent meetings after that. I mean, it's just game-changing we, how we can reinvent collaboration. And what my entreatise to CIOs is that you've given this tool set to your company. I don't care who you are, you've got the tool set. Whether you're a Microsoft shop, a team shop, a whatever shop, Cisco shop, you've got the tool set but you haven't given them the roadmap of reinventing how they work and how they collaborate. And that's a partnership that you, the CIO, needs to have with whoever is going to be the behavioral engineer of new ways of working. Now, when I grew up in southwestern Pennsylvania, um, the steel industry's ass was being kicked by the Japanese because they adopted a new way of working called Six Sigma TQM. And my old man was an unemployed steel worker as a result. That was a major shift in ways of working. We engineered manufacturing differently. And engineers did that. 
you spin ahead and we all know what agile did to ways of working and we're still catching up using agile ways of working outside of software engineering but clearly today in a radically um volatile world agility is the is the new operating system if we're going to catch up to it eventually but guess what it was engineers who, who engineered that new way of working for software acceleration just like manufacturing acceleration we're now in a world where we're trying to re-engineer white color work who are the natural engineers of that no one this is not the purview of hr hr is a policy oriented function ultimately they are originally a risk mitigating policy oriented function but now they're focused on learning and development and and human acceleration but they're not engineers so we've given tools to the world of white collar but we haven't re-engineered the work and re-engineered ways of working i think this is the imprimatur of the cio organization and what my my recommendation is is that for cio organizations to take it on yourself you should re-engineer your ways of working and then export that to the rest of the company once you've got it right and that's what people like Fahim at Home Depot is doing a beautiful job of re-engineering how they're working in the IT organization and then using that to export out to the rest of the uh, the rest of the world yeah, interesting insights. I appreciate you uh, bringing to bear your deep thinking on the topic in so many different directions there, Keith. For, for those who anticipate um, a portion of the work still happening in offices, wh yeah. what do you advise them in terms of the kinds of work that they ought to do or the sorts of activities that are best done in person mm. versus virtual? So good. Well, first of all, I don't care if you're five days a week in the office or not, you're still a hybrid company, most likely. Unless, and if you, as soon as you have two offices and somewhere in the world, you're a hybrid. And so let's just acknowledge that we're hybrid. Once we're hybrid, then we start, we, we introduce to a team the, the, the recognition of what we call the collaborative stack. You always start asynchronous because you start bolder and broader. With, with the transformational efforts that most of your clients and friends are, are trying to achieve, Peter, um, they, they have so many different constituents that they have to co-create with. And, you know, think about the business units, the functional areas, um, their own groups within IT, vendors. And the aperture of collaboration, if done well, should be quite broad. Asynchronous collaboration provides that aperture and that ability for, to get massive, bold inputs to the top of the decision-making process. Right now, that doesn't now the, the old mindset of if I got people involved early and broadly, we would grind to a halt or we would have a need for consensus and therefore never be bold. Those are old mindsets. We've got to re engineer the social contract that says we want your boldest input, but we or whomever is the right accountable party will be responsible for equally bold analysis. So in the olden days, you got somebody in the room and they thought that they were decision makers. They're not, they're, they're, they're input, right? And so we've got to get ready for that. And that's true, you take a look at organizations, you know, not to herald Elon Musk in, in any real way, but if you take a look at how organizations like um, SpaceX and why they are so much better than NASA and what um, is being done at companies like uh, uh, Amazon even, the use of small agile teams who are empowered 
to make big, bold decisions is, is what I'm talking about. But just because you're a small agile team doesn't mean you haven't taken broad, diverse input, right? So when, when they talk about the two pizza rule or whatever that is, that doesn't mean that only two pizzas worth of people have to have input. What a, what a loss if you, if you didn't get the bolder input. Now, when you do get into the room for your two pizzas, you better be ready not to use the time for stuff that could have been done in asynchronous. This is where you're wrestling ideas to the ground. This is where you're debating, right? It's not the time to get original input. You got that asynchronously from broad, a broader group. Now it's the time to pick what are the debates we're going to have and where are we going to stress test, tinsel test, bulletproof, the things we're thinking about. So now the other thing is I, I'm very saddened by, I was just down in Palm Beach recently. I was hired just to do a keynote for this major hedge fund about new ways of working. And I got there and I was so uh, sad by how they had organized their agenda that I sort of hijacked that I asked the CEO, I was like, would you mind if, you know, the dinner the night before I was going to speak was a lovely dinner of small talk. And I said to him, I said, look, you've got people in New York, Hong Kong and London for the first time coming together since the pandemic. And you're just going to throw good red wine at them and think that that's a sufficient enough way to build the kind of relationships that they can stand on for the next year. He said, why don't we go deep while we're here? Why don't we get to know each other while we're here? Let's not allow serendipitous bonding to be the mechanism by which we connect. So I threw a, a table out to the question, a question out to the table, which was just as simple as tonight in groups of five, I want you to share what are you struggling with the most these days, personally or professionally? And then I kicked it off and I gave both a personal and a professional struggle, which set a vulnerable tone. And it was, it was powerful. The, the tables were, and this was, by the way, a very cynical group of Brits, which tends to be the worst group to try to get to do these kind of exercises. I find that Britain and Maine are the most difficult times, you know, that the, the stalwart sort of group that they are. But um, anyway, so I, I give that to you and say, when you are together, you're wrestling the tough ideas to the ground. You're intimately bonding and connecting in ways that, is not as easy to do on video. And I mean, you use that time richly, not it's it, no wonder people are pissed off at you for dragging them back in the office. If you're just going to do the same damn stuff that they could have done while at the same time, take care of their kids. Yeah. It's so interesting. I, I wanted to, I, and I love the way in which you frame that and the necessity for a leader to begin the conversation to set the tone of vulnerability, as you noted, you, you played that role in this in order to model the behavior. But no doubt, I would imagine that if it was somebody who, you know, met you on a flight that was going to their own meeting that didn't include you, a C-level executive, that, that the suggestion would be for that person to model the behavior you're hoping to, uh, to, 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 to fill the table with conversation. Is that fair it was enough? interesting. I, I gave a talk yesterday at a pharma company. And it was, again, it was just a keynote. I wasn't actually coaching the team. And I was in front of the larger group, but I said to the executive team, I said, when are you meeting next? And they said, well, we're having dinner tonight. And I said, great, then you can try this exercise as I'm suggesting all of your teams do. And then the executive came up to me and, and she said, you know, I'm, I'm a little worried because I'm very uncomfortable sharing personally. And I said, it's okay. Why don't you say that? to the team 
and invite whomever is more comfortable to start. What a beautiful invitation. It's a vulnerable invitation in and of itself, but you're, you're allowing the team to lean on whoever's superpower it is to be more open and have a more vulnerable aperture. Yeah. And look, you know, you and I both know that technologists aren't necessarily the best at these kind of, of exercises. They're, they're more than often heads down in the analysis and the software and the, um, and the technology. And, you know, this is an area that isn't the greatest strength, which is why we've chosen to focus in the IT area. It's a, um, I see such, you know, in, in the IT area, the, the IT organization really can be the Sherpa of massive business transformation, but the silos are tend to be stronger and the willingness to be the navigator of these personal relationships, both within IT and as trusted advisors can be rather weak. So it's like you've got bigger gaps, but bigger potential. What's a, what a great opportunity to bring this to bear. And it sounds like at the beginnings of what you've written and spoken about of the social chemical connection that you say is so yeah, critical, yeah. that this be the new North Star uh, when we are together, when we are collaborating. Is that, is that, is that fair? Exactly right. Yeah. 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 Because it is better. I mean, if you and I were face to face today, it, there would be something different. Not that, you know, but on the same regard, if I shared with you something I'm struggling with right now with my foster son, my oldest foster son, that would bond us in a way that could be very powerful. And you would remember that and it would empathize with us and, and it, it, it would be beneficial. But if we were in person doing that, it would be maybe 20%, 30% better. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Uh, you, you've also written about, and it, w- one of the many reasons why I think there's been a lot of angst about the changes to modes of work, it has been the great resignation uh, as, as so-called. I know that you you believe that that's a misnomer. You prefer to frame it as the great exploration. And I wonder if you could talk about, you know, your own diagnosis now several years on, not necessarily raging to the same degree that it was in 2021 and 22. Well, but your, your, own, your own thought process about that. I think we went through a very significant inflection point during the pandemic of the question of what really matters and what will I tolerate? And, you know, the ability to be home with our loved ones and the, the, you know, the question of putting up with the BS that we used to think we put up with and then cutting to the core of what really matters when health and well-being and mental health, right, became so at the forefront of our conversation and dialogue. Um, I still think that while we may not be seeing an economic environment where people are fleeing from the workplace like we did during the great resignation, we all know about quiet quitting. And I believe that there's still an emotional draw toward asking that question, what's important to me? Now, um, what I think is very interesting is, I, I think we've stopped asking each other in the workplace. During the pandemic, we were always asking, how are you? And I, we're not asking that question anymore. We're asking how much more can you give me? And so the humanity of, of the workplace and the work interactions, we shouldn't lose that. We should rebuild that and we should keep it forefront because, you know, with, with, with AI, with the, with the extraordinary demand for specific types of engineers, particularly, if you as an IT professional are not creating something special, how in the world are you going to compete? How in the world are you going to compete against 
you know, as I mentioned earlier, so much of our research, we had 2000, the book you showed competing in the new world of work. We had 2000 teams in a study during the last five years around who is really reinventing the way they work for the new world of work. And what does it look like when they do? And 15% of that 2000 teams were doing a decent job of it. And we found none of them in the Fortune 100. They were mostly in the unicorn community. So you've got this competition for talent and you've got these, um, these fast growth companies. You've got these places that are not the, the technology is just the tail. The technology is the dog. And, you know, and technology is celebrated and the CEO is an engineer. And you take a look at those companies, where, where are your people going to go? You know, and so I feel like there is still a massive competition every day for the intimacy and the soul of our associates. Yeah. A lot of people talk about purpose. I'd love to hear your impression of this. I mean, if I asked anybody, you know, if anybody asked me, you know, who's one of the greatest thinkers around you know, technology strategy would be you. Hmm. And clearly as a part of strategy, you're, you're looking at the, the role of purpose in that. It's not easy for every organization to find a bonding purpose. Like, you know, perhaps like a Google has or like a goodwill organization has uh, or a nonprofit, et cetera, right? Um, or even like a Tesla or a SpaceX which, you know, when you talk to those organizations, they'll put up with a lot of Elon's bullshit because of the purpose. Um, but I feel like, and I'll be interested in your thinking, sometimes the bonding of the purpose is actually the ways of working in, in a few places, meaning this is one of those places that my team has my back. This is one of those places that I'm learning more than I've ever learned before. This is the greatest growth sprint I've ever had. I mean, I feel like that kind of, if I were looking at differentiating value, I would be looking not just at external enterprise purpose, but I would also be looking at, you know, how we treat each other as a, as a, as a way to do that. But maybe you can, what's your thinking about that and tethering strategy to, you know, employee retention? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a, a great point you already raised, Keith. And I think that the tendency at times is for this to be, uh, you know, promotional materials that are put on posters near the elevators in the restrooms, but as you point out, doesn't lead to changes in action. And right, the proof is in the pudding, obviously. Uh, it's like putting up one of those posters that has an eagle and talks about how we're going to soar together or something like that, right? What, what does that mean, really? And how is my behavior changing? How is my expectation changing as a result of that poster being put up? So I think you're absolutely right. This flows from from the top in terms of, I mean, and you've already talked about so many of these uh, activities that leaders might foster in order to ensure that the greater organization recognizes this is a place that they can thrive, a place where they're protected, where they feel psychological safety, where they're willing to take risks, which after all, of course, is the source of innovation to begin with. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't mean to disparage having sort of a message and putting words to that. It's actually a very powerful thing. But of course, once you do that, and, 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 and as part of that very exercise to establish it, so important to understand then what are the activities? What are the day-to-day -day work that we're going to do to ensure yeah. that what's written actually is lived? Yeah. And that's, to me, that's what I spend my life every day working on. 
changing cultures by changing practices. Mm. And it's, and I think the medium of changing cultures by changing practice is the team. Mm. I think there's a lot of organizations that think of culture as an enterprise question. And so you, you do these big cultural, you know, posters and whatever, but it's spreading the peanut butter so thin, you can't even taste it. And what you need to do is really drive it home in behavior of how we work together in the team. And I would even define team more broadly as who we need to work with to get stuff done. So it's not team in my world isn't aligned to an org chart. You know, it's it's aligned to the goals. Yeah, well, well very well articulated. You know, one of the things that I think uh, has a lot of people also concerned or intimidated that you've written thoughtfully about is there's a tendency, I think, for, for some of us to get stuck in our ways of work and have our skills ossified to some extent. You know, the there's so much that's written that the pace of change is such that what you studied at university, for those very few people, by the way, who study something that then becomes the nature of what they do professionally, uh, even for them, those skills erode rather quickly because of the passage of time and the pace of change from a business perspective. You've talked about the necessity to think about future-proofing yourself, if you will. And I wonder if you could speak to some of the, the methods to do so. You know, I, it's, it's interesting. I, um, I've always been a seeker. And sometimes that puts me five years ahead of a trend, like I was with virtual and remote work, right? But I've always had just a deep curiosity for looking around corners, and particularly in the area of ways of working. But, you know, for me, I could talk about the need to lead your life with a great deal of curiosity, which I always have. But I'll tell you what's better, which is associate yourself with futurists. And I, and I say that not to say that everybody has an opportunity to hang out with, you know, Tom Friedman and Peter Diamandis. Um, but yes, you, but today we can't, right? I mean, we can follow their blogs, we can read their writings. And I have been, you know, Peter Diamandis uh, uh, looking at his work for a very long time. And I've known for five years at least that if, if business, if a business wasn't fundamentally AI engineered, it wouldn't be in business. So I've been thinking about this around what is, what is AI in a team's performance look like? What will it mean when you have a team member associated with their AI bot? And how will that team operate when it's a team of five with each of their AI bots, generative AI bots? I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about how sales professionals can accelerate their performance and their customer intimacy through generative AI. I've been thinking about that. So, and it's because, and I wouldn't have done it because I'm that brilliant or I have that foresight, but I hang out with those who do, whether it's virtually or really. And so I would just say, to future-proof yourself, you need to tether yourselves to the icons that are all, that, that that's all they do. They, they're full-time curators of the future. And, you know, you can do that for me if you want on ways of working. You can do that through you in terms of, you know, technology strategy and where that's going. You do it with Peter Diamandis and, you know, future uses of cutting-edge radical technologies, et cetera. So I think that's important. I, you know, it's the easy path to be honest. 
I'd be interested in some of your conclusions about generative AI. You know, so much of the work that you do is, you know, person to person interaction, cultures, uh, you know, talking about all that's done as a, you know, that, that, that uh, uh, mental health is a team sport, that we win together, uh, you know, all these sorts of things. But, but you bring up a really interesting and provocative point that it won't be long before we are, we ha each have our chiefs of staff with us uh, who are artificial intelligence and impacting the way that we work, as well as, of course, how we collaborate. And I realize in the grand scheme of things, still relatively early days, especially relative to the topic of generative AI, you you have, you have do uh, hang with a number of folks who have been investing much longer than the late November release of ChatGPT, the introduction to so many as to what generative AI is. Uh, so perhaps you've got a, a longer crack at, at developing some of hy your hypotheses. But what do you think about, um, as you think about advising teams as you do to ensure that they're focused on getting that balance correct. What are some of the, what are your, some of your early conclusions? Well, it was interesting because I had a dinner in San Francisco last year and it, it was Reed Hoffman, um, Andrew Ang, Peter Diamandis, Kai Fu Lee, who was one of the old OG AI guys, right? In the early language models, et cetera. And it was like there were 10 of us around the table. And I get the value of being the host that convened the dinner. So I get to learn from these folks, right? So my, my superpower is convening these things. And people love it when I can, but I don't think anybody's coming to see me. They're coming to see each other. And I just happen to be there, which is wonderful. And so uh, it's interesting, having had that sneak peek prior to Davos' release of ChatGBT and Microsoft, which sort of set it all off in January of this year. Um, I, I wake up today, and we're doing a research project today that is looking at what are the most practical uses of AI today that are changing the actual ways we work. And the reality is almost nothing. The average sales rep today, whether they've got Duet available to them through their Google stack, they're still not using the technology as a part of their day in the life at 8.30 in the morning. They may go to it for a random search, but how are they doing it to get net new account increases, right? So what I've started to do on this new research project, which I'll be publishing starting this, you know, probably in about a month, is I've been getting CIOs and some of their key functional partners, CIOs and chief revenue officers, in a room together and saying, okay, let's stop looking down the future and let's look at tomorrow. How do we actually start the work now? And how do we accelerate the behavior change of a sales rep using the tools and their functionality that we currently have? And let's stop these bullshit conversations about what will be possible because that's where most of the conversations still exist. So I'll just tell you that for me, as, as excited as I was last year and thinking about what's possible, now that it is possible, I don't see enough activity in its use case. And I think we need to spend a lot more time in the, again, to me, it's all about the small practices. You change a small practice, you change a mindset. What I wanna see, I've come up with this idea that we need to have, and I've got a, I'm working on a diagnostic tool today that will measure whether or not a team is what I call a world-class digitally forward team. Maybe a year or two ago, 
that was all about the use of the collaborative stack, use of hybrid tools, et cetera, reinventing meetings, all of that, which was big by itself and still hasn't even scratched the surface of implementation. But now we've got the use of generative AI and other tools that are now available to us that we're, we're also not scratching the surface of. And so, you know, look, look how long it took us for the adoption of CRM tools. I mean, that was 1980s, right? 90s, I guess, where the first CRM systems came on, you know, uh, Tom Siebel, 1990s. And we still have people that don't want to update their data. And in the IT world, this is really where my heart is and my, you know, my final entreatises, which is why, Peter, I'm so excited about partnering with you more broadly, the behavior changes in IT and the heralding of behavior changes associated with IT are, are so untapped. And I think it starts with IT. If we don't do it for ourselves, we're not going to bring it to the organization. I, I very well said, Keith. I, I appreciate that perspective as well. I, I wanted to. I wanted to also ask you. Uh, we've talked a lot about the ways in which you work. We've certainly also benefited from many of your insights, uh, which I so greatly appreciate. Uh, on your rise to doing what you what you do, um, I wonder who did you admire? Uh, who influenced the choices you made to take the leap from being a chief marketing officer, big positions that you had, at two consequential scaled organizations to 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 begin to do some of the things that have blossomed into the career that that we're seeing evidence of through the insights that you've 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 brought to the table in this conversation. I don't know if this is revisionist or if it's how it actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I like the story so I'll tell it. Um I was a part of the executive team at Deloitte as a very young man right out of Harvard Business School. And well first of all, I, I when I was at Harvard there was a piece of me that wanted to stay there working with mentors like Len Schlesinger. I wanted to maybe stay there and be a professor, but I really never appreciated the, the lethargy, the, the difficult uh, to get things done, the speed, the siloization. I mean, the reality of the way academics work is you're either a behavioral scientist or you're a psychologist. And if your work cuts across the two, I'm sorry, we don't have a place for you in our, in our, in our world. You won't get tenure which is silly because that's not the way applied work works. So anyway, so I decided I'm not going to stay at Harvard. I'm going to go, I'm going to explore the world of changing work through consultancy. So I went to Deloitte. Well, not too long, they bumped me into overhead and I became the chief marketing officer of Deloitte at a very young age, recognizing that looking back on that, we were a band of brothers and sisters taking a hill together. We were going to be someday at par with Accenture and McKinsey. And I gotta tell you, we were the lowest in the big eight. Literally, we were nowhere in the consideration set, nowhere. And I think you could argue that today, Deloitte has aspired and achieved that, that parity with one of the best consultancies, you know, for professional services firms in the world. Um, then I went over to Starwood and it was a divisive, competitive, difficult place to work. And yet the innovations were extraordinary. And a lot of them driven from the top, Barry Stern, that was brilliant. W Hotel Chains, The Heavenly Bed, et cetera. But if you look at where that firm ended up, selling at a, at a low multiple to Marriott, you can tell that there was a big difference in those two paths. 
And I would argue that culture had a lot to do with it. And so when I decided to leave that world, you know, and I had a choice that I would go back and be another CMO, but I was so, I went back to my era where I said, I really love this research. I love, love thinking about these ideas of future ways of working. And while I don't want to go into an academic institution, I started seeing work from the Gallup organization around employee engagement. They were measuring in employees' engagement scores and correlating those against productivity. And I looked at that and I said, great, but what about team? Because engagement is about an individual, but what about team? And Lencioni's book had just come out. It was 20 years ago. And if you sort of think about what I decided to do, I took that book and it was very influential to me took the work that Gallup was doing around rigor and science. And I just spent 20 years building a research institute around high-performing teams and methodology around high-performing teams. Because I know I, I couldn't have existed in an academic institution, so I created my own. And the monetization of it, of course, was external in coaching and writing and, and speaking and that, those things. And that's what we wake up to today. Um, that's, that's sort of the, the path that took me from there to there. And that's great. I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, I wanted to also ask you what you would define as the secrets to your success. You've already mentioned a couple of things that are important. Deep curiosity, looking around corners, uh, a, a convening people uh, to, to, to everyone's benefit. Clearly some superpowers that you have. What, what else beyond that would you highlight as some of the secrets to your having built the success that you have? Well, I wrote my first book about it. And it was never eat alone. And it was really all about the awareness that everything that you want to achieve in this world will be done with and through other people, both opening doors for you for opportunity, which is what happened when I became a mentee of the CEO of Deloitte when I was just a young man that allowed me the, the early career growth that I had and the learning. You know, my, my friendship, when I got into this world of intellectual property and thought leadership, I wrote down on a piece of paper, you know, people like Peter Diamandis, Tony Robbins, Deepak Chopra, et cetera, all of whom are friends now. And, you know, those friends, I, I recognized that if I wanted to build, relate, if I wanted to build knowledge, I wanted to do those through relationship. And I, I've done the same thing with, um, you know, I, I struggled in, a, in my first marriage. And when we separated, I said, I'm going to hang out with people that I desperately admire who have great relationships, right? I want to hang out with couples that inspire me. And, and, and I won't accept another relationship unless I know it's at that level. So I think, you know, it's just really, to me, the path to power is the path of relationship. And it's the path of co-creation and it's the path of humbly learning from others. Um, when I wrote the other book, which I think is really written for a CIO community, it's called Leading Without Authority. What I realized was David Allen's book, Getting Things Done. Getting things done today is not about a task list or process. Getting things done today is an arbitration of your ability to work relationships in networks. And leading without authority is a roadmap how you as a CIO can be the chief transformation officer and how, you're, how you need to make your team be able to be those trusted advisors and lead without authority into the organization. 
And I see so often, you know, CIOs fighting for the authority of the transformation instead of humbly serving the transformation and therefore becoming the authority. So I think those are some of the, the, the meandering path I've had around success, but it really is all about people. It's all about recognizing the importance of people and partnership to, to take going to the next level. And look, and, and, and I'll be very open to the, my, the audience here. You know, for me right now, as I think about my mission around building high-performing teams and, and technology transformation, for me, it's about finding folks in your audience who I can partner with. You know, I've built the IP and I've built the business and who can I partner with? Who can be, you know, what former CIO who really has a sensitivity for this kind of transformation can be a coach in our organization, right? Folks like yourself that perhaps, you know, we can find ways to, to partner together. I haven't spent enough time eating my own dog food in the last 10 years. I build a practice, but now it's time for me to find the acceleration of that practice through better partnerships. That's where I'm going. So I welcome anybody who's listening to this that feels that that's an invitation to reach out. Wonderful. Keith Ferrazzi, thank you so much for spending time uh, with me and with our audience. This has uh, been just a wonderful conversation, learning uh, a lot more from the work that you do, the insights you've garnered, bringing to the table so much uh, of what you have learned from the many people that you have had the opportunity to collaborate with. And uh, I'm honored you would take a little time with me today. Oh, please. Not at all. I mean, I, I so respect what you built. Looking forward to spending more time with you personally and at Forbes and all the places that your your big, brilliant head moves and shakes. So I'll see you there. I, I look forward to it. Thank you so much.